Our gospel lesson this day comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's found in the 10th chapter and begins at the 24th verse. Jesus said, But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus also said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Thanks be to God. Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I mentioned earlier that, of course, our Independence Day holiday has passed on Tuesday this this last week. And it's regrettable, I think, but most of us think more about the celebration than we do why we celebrate nowadays. But I have to ask, do you all enjoy fireworks on Tuesday? I'm a firework freak. I love them. I absolutely love them. Think back. Did you celebrate the holiday in in your yard just with maybe good picnic food and and watching the the explosions above your head? Or did you gather with neighbors in a good old-fashioned block party and have a good time and, and again, enjoy the fireworks? Or did you go to one of the large community shows, perhaps at a baseball park or something like that? Wherever you went, however you did it, I hope you had a really good time. And wherever you enjoyed the day... I pray that your fireworks were inspirational and beautiful on this 4th of July and it took you back to what Independence Day is really all about. And that was some of your discussion as you enjoyed time with your friends this past week. Again, I admit that I really enjoy fireworks. It's just one of those things, something just comes out of me when I see those things. Some of my best memories in life are like going to Georgia to Stone Mountain with my grandkids and one of my daughters and, and watching the, the fireworks and the laser show at, at Stone Mountain. That's, that's an incredible thing. And there was a place in Michigan when I was living there that our family used to go. It's, it's a place called Frankenmuth. It's sort of a Bavarian resort town. And we would drink beer that my son had brewed and enjoy the fireworks all night long. It was a glorious way to spend the time. But I think the most memorable one is one I share with my daughter, Brittany, who's just there. Um, And it was the four times we got to see Independence Day weekend while living in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. We would go watch the fireworks and we would sit on the famous battlefield there. We actually lived on the battlefield there, so we didn't have far to go. 
It was absolutely great. There were thousands and thousands of people there to watch the fireworks and join in the celebration. You have to understand, Gettysburg is a town and its surrounding bedroom areas, maybe 16,000 people even now. So it's not a big place. But we would have in excess of 60,000 people there for the fireworks show. It was an incredible environment. People just flocked from all around. And, and I had this feeling of great pride as we sat there on blankets. And those blankets covered the very ground where so many men gave their lives in the battle that turned the tide of the American Civil War. And I say so many. We don't appreciate. In the three days of the battle, 54,000 casualties in three days in Gettysburg. It tells you why um, Lincoln's address many months later was so poignant as he stood over the eventual graves of all those who had to be laid to rest after the Battle of Gettysburg. I think Independence Day celebrations in Gettysburg are much more intense than other places I've been. And, and perhaps that's because the famous battle, which, as I said, turned the tide of the Civil War, was fought on those grounds. But you may not remember the dates of that battle. They were July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And that, in large part, explains why so many people were there on July 4th. Those two celebrations, those two remembrances come together in that special week in Gettysburg. And then we also forget, living, bless you, living as we do in our time, it was only 94 years before that famous battle in southern Pennsylvania when 50 men signed a document that was written by Thomas Jefferson. Some of the words are well known to most of us. Words like, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve a political bond which they have committed with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." You know that document, of course. It is the Declaration of Independence signed in Congress on the fourth day of July in the year of our Lord, 1776. There were 50 courageous people who declared their freedom from what was then the oppressive country of England. And I say courageous because each of those 50 fully expected that they had signed their own death warrants. And for a number of those 50, that was indeed the case. And it, those sentiments, those historical recounted uh, events come to mind because Vicki read for us uh, the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. And in those verses, Paul writes what I think should be called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. In those verses Vicki read, Paul declares that in Christ we have been set free. It's a declaration of independence without doubt. Specifically, Paul is telling us that we have been set free from the frustration of our own flesh, as he calls it, from the frustration of dealing with our own sinful nature. 
What Vicky read for us is a really tough passage. It's, it's tough to deal with, not to mention the fact it's a real tongue twister in many places. But that passage requires a bit of struggle for us to understand what Paul is trying to teach us here. And the first thing that, that we struggle with is the need to understand what Paul means, means by the repeated use of the word I, that single letter word, I. I do what I don't want to do. I do, I do this, I do that. He uses I again and again and again. And it's a way for the apostle to write his attempt to describe the universal struggle of mankind. He identifies with us. We individually, like Paul, I, all of us, struggle. It's the struggle of Christians. The struggle to do what is right. To do what is righteous in the eyes of God. And he speaks about the frustration of the flesh. That's not a modern phrase. It's not one you find at the 7-Eleven. We just don't throw that one around very much. And Paul sums up what this frustration of the flesh, this frustration of living as a human being, is, is what it's like. And he does it so very well in the 15th verse when he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that I do. I, you know, I'm sure that everyone here will have to agree with Paul, as I do, and say inwardly, Amen, Paul, I've been there. I know exactly what you mean. So it brings an obvious question to mind once we get those things fixed. Why are we frustrated with our own faulty, sinful selves? I mean, after all, haven't we grown used to it by now? We've never known a day without it, right? Well, first, let's admit that in a way, our frustration with ourselves is a good thing. That frustration indicates that we truly care. We care that we do, in fact, want to do what is right, to do good things. And second, let us recognize that if we're not frustrated by that struggle, then we probably have a really serious spiritual problem, something that goes well beyond the scope of what this sermon can cover here. So, let's tackle the tough question. Why are we frustrated? Well, I think we're frustrated because we do have a desire to do those good things. Paul tells us in verse 18, we are also frustrated because we love God's law. It's a good thing. And, and if we love God's word, we don't find God's word to be a burden. It doesn't feel like a great weight on our shoulders. It's not a chore, for example, to go to God's house and worship him, which is one of the things God's law say we should do, right? Giving God our time and our talent and our treasures as in the various ways we, we serve him is not something that we do grudgingly, I hope. If we do, we're not serving God truly. We're just going through the motions. It's not a chore to go to God's house and worship him. It's a joy. It's a communal joy that we share. Giving God our time and talents, as I said, isn't grudging. is isn't something we do grudgingly. It's something we do with a cheerful heart. Serving God is not a task that we try to get finished with as soon as possible. There, God, see you later. But rather, serving God is something that we endeavor to do Always. Serving God and seeking his will should be and is our greatest source of joy. 
You know the feeling, if you've ever gone on a mission project, how you feel when that person who you have served or that family you have served comes out with their sincerest thanks for the roof that no longer leaks or the plumbing which now serves them as it should. Since we all love to do good and since we take joy in God's word, we therefore get frustrated when our sin, when our sinful self spoils our efforts. That's where the frustration comes from. And then the next logical question is, well, how does this frustration affect our lives and the way we live our lives? Well, I think it will help us to understand how the process of frustration works in the spiritual realm by more practically considering how the process works in everyday life. Now, if you're anything like me, God help you. But if you're anything like me, you know what it's like to have good intentions, right? You, you set your hearts and minds on accomplishing some task. Not just on January 1st, but any time. You make great plans. You plan to do things like eat a more healthy diet or start an exercise program or get right up when the morning alarm rings or finish those projects around the house or get to places on time or in the middle of the week for me, shave every morning, right? There's a lot of other things. You could, you could absolutely promise yourself, I'm going to do these things better or correctly going forward. In our minds, we tell ourselves, I'm really going to get it done this time. My wife reminded others, it took me two years to put baseboards on our house. This week, she's happy, finally. But, but when we tell ourselves we're going to do these things, we all know what happens, right? What happens next? We eat a big handful of donuts, or we, our exercise bike sits over there in the corner, gathering dust all by itself. Right? Or we hit that snooze button five consecutive times in the morning. And the car is still on the blocks in our driveway. Or the electric razor sits there with a full charge day after day. And it always seems like we're running late to every place we go. Despite our best intentions. It just never fails. And then surprise, we don't understand why this happens. We can't figure it out. We have not changed our plans. Absolutely not. We still want to do good things. We just don't. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Paul is talking about in what Vicki read for us. As Christians, we want to do well in that segment, if you will, of our life as well. We love God, and we know how good God has been to each of us. We know what we should do in response to God's grace. We know we should make God our highest priority or the focus and number one, um, bless you, number one priority of our lives. We should spend time with him each and every day, not just Sunday. We should pray with him for those who need prayer. And we, should, and we know we should give God our very best. And we know there are things that we must stop doing as well. You know, being prideful or gossiping or being envious or any of the other deadly or non-deadly sins. Paul says that sometimes when he is doing wrong, he knows he's doing it. And yet, he still wants to do good. 
But his sinful desire is so strong at times, it's like his sin has a personality of its own. Maybe its own body or part of his body. It's almost like it's not even him doing the wrong. But it is him. And it is us. The truth of the matter is this. It's easier for us to do what is wrong than it is for us to do what is right. We have to work at doing good, and doing wrong just, well, seems to come naturally. Excuse me. (coughs) It's easier not to pray, for example, than it is to pray. It's easier not to be committed to serving others than it is to act on our commitment to God to be of service to our sisters and brothers of the world. It's easier to have combative thoughts than supportive ones. It is easier not to give than it is to give. This condition causes us all to lament along with Paul from his passage in Romans, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Anybody recognize that term body of death? It's not well known to people in the 21st century was well known in the first century however Doug will you come join me for a minute body of death had a very specific meaning that Paul would have known as a Roman citizen and uh, in fact the church in Rome would have known that that term because it comes from ancient Roman culture now let me ask you a question did you think the only form of torture that would bring about death in the ancient Roman world looked like the cross uh, there were other they were very, very creative. Let me ask you to use your imagination. See this this good looking, healthy, strong looking guy here? I want you to pretend that Doug is dead. Okay? And now you have to pretend some more. Pretend Doug has been murdered and I am the murderer. Okay? So after it's been determined that I am the murderer this punishment called the body of death would be imposed upon me. My punishment would be, put your arm straight up, I would be bound to my victim. Many days perhaps after Doug died, I would be bound to my victim, hand to hand and face to face, all along our arms. And we would be, thank you, we would be bound together like that for every last moment of my life. I would die face to face, suffering the body of death. And Paul uses this as an analogy for what it's like to be carrying our sin around in this world. It's right there. It's right with us, face to face. It's part of us. It seems to have a body of its own. It seems to have a mind of its own. Paul paints a a vivid picture of our sinful tendency being like a corpse that we're dragging around with us. And again, this little phrase in this ancient scripture seems to go right by us in the 21st century and yet it's so vivid when we know the culture that Paul lived in but Paul makes the greater point he says he knows what to do when his own sin stares him right in the face as Doug and I were face to face he knows what to do he turns to his rescuer His rescuer, thanks be to God, is Jesus Christ, through whom we are freed from this body of death, he tells us. How does Christ rescue us? 
Well, the churchy word is he intercedes. That is, he gets in the middle. As close as Doug and I were face to face, Christ comes between my sin and myself, between the body of death and me. His spirit, Christ's spirit that is, lives within us to convict us of wrong, but also to guide us to right ways. Again, the churchy word is righteousness. And he does that by offering his own example and by giving us the advice of his holy word that comes to us through scripture. Remember this, Jesus gives us his own example. On the night in which he was arrested before his own death, Jesus showed us what to do when we face the sin of temptation. The Son of God prayed to his heavenly Father when he sensed his own human frailty while standing face to face with the strain of the supreme demands of obedience to God, obedience unto death. Remember Jesus' disciples at the same time? They didn't do so well, did they? Remember? They fell asleep. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, said Jesus, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that precisely the same thing that Paul is talking about in his letters to the Romans? What advice did Jesus give his disciples when they fell into that condition? He said, watch and pray. He called them and he calls us through the centuries to be alert. But we need to recognize our own vulnerability and we need to pray and depend on the leadership and the power and the protection of God. That night, that fateful night in the garden, Jesus was the only one who watched and prayed. And he was the only one to stand firm in the crisis of temptation. The others, they panicked and they ran away. Or they just closed their eyes. Sisters and brothers, Jesus sets us free from the frustration of the flesh. From the frustration of living with our own sin. He does that through the power of his word in our baptism. So I ask you, are you free? Is this truly a day of freedom for you? Is this a day of celebration? It should be. Every Sunday should be. Every day should be. Because Christ has indeed set you free. Free from the weight of your own sin. Free from the body of death. In Christ we have true freedom. We are free from the frustration that sin brings into our lives and living within our own flesh. I'd like to pull on your imagination one more time this day, just to make this final point. I'd like you to pretend that you are a competitive diver, high diver, in the Olympics. Okay? Just put yourself there, no matter where you are in life right now. Put yourself as one of those high divers. And you, at the Olympics, are about to climb that ladder way up there for your final dive. And just before you get on the ladder, as you're reaching for that rung to climb up, one of the judges comes and taps you on the shoulder. And that judge, judge tells you, you've already accumulated enough points. You've already won. You don't even have to dive. You can if you want. But you've already won. 
how do you think you're going to perform in that your last dive? I mean, you don't have any pressure on you. You don't care if you embarrass yourself or if you do something you've never tried before. You can just go for it, right? Are you going to hold back? Are you going to feel nervous or inhibited in any way? Aren't you just free to go for it? In that circumstance, you will likely dive better than you've ever dived in your life. You will be free to dive as never before because you've already realized and and held the victory. It is done. Remember, sisters and brothers, when we are baptized into Christ, we are already set free. We are set free from all the burdens of life. We are free from that moment on to live like never before. And we're made free in that way because we know that through Christ, the victory has already been won and it's been handed over to us. That, that is freedom. So brothers and sisters, as you go from this place, make ready your fireworks. It doesn't have to be bursts in the sky. It can be acts of service and love. But make ready your fireworks. And go out there, go out into what God has created, and live in Christ's joy-filled freedom, now and forever. Amen.